We're joined in the studio by Joss from Friends of the Forest in Mogo. Um, g'day, Joss. How are you? Oh, good. Thanks, Scotty. Yeah, excellent. Excellent. So, uh, yeah, Friends of the Forest, Mogo. How come the forests in, in Mogo need some friends? Um, we um, established our group at the beginning of this year because um, we realised that um, all the hills behind Batemans Bay are being logged on the beach side of the highway. Um, and we became aware of it because of local media last September, um, because the Duns Creek residents campaign was trying to stop the logging at Duns Creek and Duns Creek's in the hills behind Malua Bay. Um, so in January, we sort of formed and created a Facebook group. Um, and we're made up of um, locals from land care groups, coast care groups, um, 350.org. And also people who are just concerned about the logging that they've seen. You know, when they just drive down their local road, they see the forest that that's always been there and it's just been logged. Um, yeah, and what we did was we thought, well, Mogo is going to be logged. Um, so we need to let people know about it. Yeah, so what, what's the Mogo area like? Um, so Mogo is a little tourist village. Um, it's about 10 minutes drive south of Batemans Bay, so it has, um, it's very busy in summer, lots of little tourist shops, um, and behind the Mogo village is a little gold rush colony, a little replica pioneer town, um, and around that is a nature trail, so, and, and then immediate, there's hills with, with spotted gum forest. Yeah, right, so who uses that sort of facility? Well, the nature trail, um, is just from Annette Street, just from the um, back of town, and it's it was actually established with bicentenary funding. So it's a, about two kilometres, and it just loops around. So that's for locals and visitors, um, and you can walk the dogs at State Forest. Um, and in other parts of the town, locals are you know whenever we're there, we see people mountain biking, walking, and walking their dogs. Yeah, right. So it's fairly commonly used. Yeah. And how about Mogo? That's quite a little tourist mecca there. Does that get a lot of visitors during the year? Yeah, I find um, when I'm there on a Saturday or a Sunday, I can barely cross the road. There's <laughs> so many people um, and all the shops are completely full. So, you know, lots of cafes, um, nice little local, um, you know, craft shops. So it's a real um, feature of the area. And we've also got the Mogo Zoo, Zoo nearby, which is, a you know, a real star in, in the area for yeah, tourism. Yeah, right. So what do you reckon draws people to the area? Well, I mean, the south coast of um, is, a, you know, a premier, premium destination for Canberra, for holidaymakers. In fact, I've read recently that there's more people going to the south coast than there are to the Gold Coast, which... Yeah, right. That was just this year. I found that amazing. That's so, pretty amazing, yeah. Yeah, and then, of course, lots of people are, you know, there's the local population and a lot of people are retiring there because of that they want to live near the beach and live near the beautiful forest yeah yeah right and isn't it called the nature coast yes it, it has been called that yes yeah yeah right <laughs> so um so yeah there's uh the, the new south wales forestry corporations come to town um what what's happened there yeah so i mean there's a f i've already driven you know if you drive through the the dirt ridge road from when you drive up through the Batemans Bay on the Princess Highway after Bunnings, you can turn on the left through the dirt roads and all those hills have been logged, the hills behind Batemans Bay, Malua Bay. Um, and so with Mogo, we knew that it was happening. So, 
you know when the logging is going to start because the harvest plan is published on the on the Forestry Corporation website. Um, there is a claim that the community are advised, but in from my understanding, only the immediate neighbours uh, receive a notification. Um, so we knew that the, peop the, the residents and the businesses of MOGA were very unlikely to know that the logging was going to occur. And so we felt they needed to know. So we actually created a, a four-page leaflet and um, about five of us leafleted the whole town. We went to every business, we went to every town resident, but also the country roads surrounding it and, and just gave people an information sheet, um, including the link to the forestry page with the harvesting plan. Um, and we just felt that people needed to um, be informed so that they were empowered to follow up on it. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> so what, what, uh, what sort of form does the logging take? Um, if you go and say, if you drive into one of these logged areas, what would you expect to see? Well, what we have at, uh, and I'll use, um, I'll use real examples because I think people can relate to that. Um, so in, um, uh, in Dunn's Creek, which was done just before Mogo, um, it had a informal mountain bike tr tracks. Um, there's the Vietnam track, um, Jonah Bark. And so forestry just marked out the, the width of the track, one metre. So they put little bits of pink tape. Um, they mark out... Um, and this is what the local environmental people who are concerned do is they check they check the marking out. So the creeks get the small creeks get a 10 meter buffer. Bigger creeks like the Tamaga River starts in Dunn's Creek that gets some um, 20 meters. Um, but then when they log it, um, all the, the, the logging machinery, it's, it's a great big piece of machinery with caterpillar treads. Um, so people don't use chainsaws anymore. It has a big arm that, that <coughs> grabs the tree and cuts it and then drops it. Um, and then it's taken to a log dump, which is a cleared area. And there's quite a few of them. Um, so I think in, in Mogo, and I, you know, I have to check, but there's something like 13 log dumps. Um, and then they're loaded onto the truck and driven away. Um, so the, the, the big machine, it, it disturbs the ground, it runs over everything, crushes everything, it disturbs the ground, it knocks trees, so trees get um, nicks in them. Um, when the trees are cut, they break off branches and break other trees as they fall down. Um, so you get these cleared sort of tranches going down the hill. Um, trees fall over things areas like the mountain bike tracks and walking tracks and then they get dragged off. So I guess it's, it's, you know, for someone who's been walking through their forest, it's then basically, apart from the little strips where, you know, there's not big trees taken out that are left standing, you know, it's a scene of destruction. Yeah, so you're saying there's, there's mountain bike tracks out at Dunn's Creek. How close to the houses are we talking here at Dunn's Creek? Uh, so it's just across the road. So people live on the other side of the road. Um, right. in that case. So they'd be able to look out their front window and see a great big machine taking out the forest? Well, no, what they do is they usually leave, a th you know, most people are aware they leave a visual buffer. Um, and in fact, they put in a secondary road right next to Dunn's Creek Road. So it's just a few metres downhill, thin strip of trees. And then there's a, a dirt road that all the machinery is going up and down. Mm. So, 
So there's a little bit so that you don't have to look at it straight up, but then, say, if you want it to get out into the bush, you're, uh, you're, you've, you've got a transformed thing. How well do people get to know their little patch of bush? Um, well, people who live there are, are, are walking there regularly, particularly dog walkers um, and nature lovers. Um, you know, I mean, I know with the Duns Creek campaign, some of the campaigners there grew up there, um, had been horse riding through that bush, um, and it was very much part of their local area. So, you know, seen, I mean, State Forest is, you know, they talk about it being a resource for people to go camping and enjoy nature so that's until it's logged yeah yeah so i guess people in canberra would be fairly familiar with with getting out into their bit of bush and you get to know it you know you know you might know the bird that lives in that little hollow here and the, the snake that goes across here watch out for that one and you get to know all the little intricacies you might have your favorite tree or whatever you know um and yeah. So at, at um, Mogo there's, and, and Duns Creek, there's lyrebirds. So when you walk along, you see where they've been scratching. And I've, um, and I've seen a lyrebird there and a feather. It's the first time I've found a, a, a long lyrebird tail feather. Um, there's also wombats. So what locals had to do, because they're not marked out, is actually get wires in and mark out the wombat holes because there was concerns that the machinery would drive over and crush them, as occurred at Glenbog. Um, that's up sort of, I think, more the Kuma area. There was this outrage about all these wombats that have been buried alive. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I guess getting back to the, the thing, it, it becomes really like a part of your home, really, doesn't it, the surrounding area? Because humans aren't supposed to live in a little box. We range around an area, you know? Yeah. Uh, so what happened at Mogo is um, uh, because we'd put that leaflet out um we actually went along to the we were invited to the mogo business chamber and forestry were there and it was not just ourselves but some residents did contact forestry uh, about their local bush um and they um you know they waved our pamphlet and said because of this um where we have put in some buffer zones so they did put a 10 meter buffer next to the two kilometer nature walking track behind the gold rush colony so people and I'd love people to go out and people need to go out and look at the forest and see what's happening. Um, so that 10 metres that's there up the hill is because we, um, you know, put out the word that, you know, we don't want them just to log right up to it. And also, so that, that saved um, a couple of hectares and also the locals uh, just in another part of town demanded that an, an area they'd been walking in be not be logged. So so that was the good news, some f five hectares that was sort of saved there. Um, with Duns Creek, you know, the, the Duns Creek Residents Group put on a sustained campaign for six months. Um, and in the end, log we, and we came in at the end of it, but um, the loggers did pull out and eight hectares was saved. But that was a very small amount out of a compartment of several hundred hectares, and that's out of the million hectares that can be logged in New South Wales. So, um, you know, it's a sort of bittersweet victory for the locals there because, you know, they had to walk in and see, you know, the bush, it's empty. That you, you know, we're advised that you don't have the birds calling that were there before. It's a very empty forest. It's devoid of the arboreal species, the, mm. the, the large possums. Now, you're at the... Um that whole strip between the Prince's Highway and the coast, that's, uh, that's 
scheduled for logging or, or ha- has been logged. Is that right? Um, well, it's it's of particular concern like between the Princess Highway and the beach. Um, so between Batemans Bay down to Mogo, it, mm. it is, you know, Mogo is still going. Um, um, but also at Corona Forest, they're logging on either side of the Princess Highway, including on the beach side, beach side and that started this week. Um, so, but the, the logging is going all the way up and down the coast, all the way from Eden right up to northern New South Wales, and it's these beautiful spotted gum forests up till Nara, and then it's a different type of vegetation. But yeah, the Great Dividing Range. Yeah. All right. Um, well, that raises a bunch of issues, really. Anyway, what we're going to do right now is listen to a song. We'll listen to a song called "You Ain't Taking Nothing from This Land." Sing your song, brother. Sing your song. Feel free to join in. I don't know who you are or what you want, but I have to say I'm not impressed. I don't know why you want us all to burn, but your lies are going to be put to the test. This land has been here for a million years, bringing love, life and wisdom from the coast to the cliffs. There's precious few things that I hold more dear. I'm sorry, but you're just not the worst of my fears, cause you ain't taking nothing from this land. People have been here forever, and here we'll stand. Whether we're chained up or linking arms, you don't understand. You ain't taking nothing from this land. You ain't taking nothing from this land. And I know you know that you're lying to yourself and you're lying to your kids and you're lying through your teeth, everybody. And we know you know, but you keep on smiling at us. You think we'd ever forgive you for this? Because they come in here talking money and fear But no matter what the people say you never seem to hear We're saying it loud and we're making it clear There ain't no room for fossil fuels on this blue sphere Cause you ain't taking nothing from this land People have been here forever and here we'll stand You ain't taking nothing from this land People have been here forever and here we'll stand Whether we're chained up or linking arms, you don't understand You ain't taking nothing from this land You ain't taking nothing from this land You ain't taking nothing from this land. Right on. Right on. Right on. Right on. And that was some guy. It sounds like George Bishop to me, but we're not really sure exactly who that was. So if you know who that was singing that song, do let us know so we can accredit them properly. But that was a live recording done. At a protest site, we think it was probably James Price Point. Um, anyway, yeah, do let us know if you know about that one. Great old song. Uh, we're joined in the studio by Joss from Friends of the Forest Mogo. 
So, um, what else have they got coming up by way of uh, by way of plunder? Well, the next thing um, that we're looking at, um, apart from supporting the people at Corona Forest, which is between Mystery Bay and Central Tilba, um, we found out that they're actually going to be logging next to the Corn Trail, and um, we we're really shocked about that because um, it's in it's surrounded by Monga National Park, and we actually can't uh, don't understand why it's not part of the national park. Um, so um, we found out that com- there's two compartments there, 516 and 517, and the forest there is called Buckenbarra State Forest. Um, and so the bottom quarter of the Corn Trail, you go, you go in through, you access that from either Runnyford Road, which is between B- Batemans Bay and, and Mogo, or for Canberra people, when you're driving from Batemans Bay, after Braidwood, you see the turn off to the top of the Corn Trail. That's um, just after Braidwood at, at the signpost for Monga National Park. But further on, um, there's a road called Misty Mountain Road. So Misty Mountain Road is uh, 20 kilometres of dirt and then you get to the bottom of the Corn Trail. So that's how you access it to get to the bottom. And then the when you walk along that, the, when you're looking up at the hill, very steep hills of rainforest, most of it's rainforest. Um, You know, the uh, National Park runs out at 50 metres and they'll start logging. So all the trees up the hills there, they'll be gone. Um, So we're very concerned about that because we know there's a lot of people um, who use the Corn Trail that have a stake in it, um, particularly for recreational use. And we've contacted the Braidwood Historical Society and we're going to be meeting with them shortly to have a look at it. Because um, they're very concerned about it. Well, what was the corn trail used for? Um, well, it's a um, it was a, a traditional route for Indigenous people to travel up from the coast through to the the plateau there at Monga, um, just bef- just before Braidwood. Um, and I think it was I, I'm not an expert on it, but and I'll learn more when I go with the <laughs> Braidwood Historical Society. Um, but I understand that pioneers also used that trail. Um, to traverse to the coast. Yeah, yeah. I think at the time wheat wasn't that feasible at the top, but corn was grown a lot, and uh, that was taken down the trail. And that's I was the, always wondering how the, the name corn came. Name. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Old, old heritage site, really, for both uh, Indigenous and and Whitey. Yeah, and we went for a reconnaissance, and we actually looked at. Um, you know, we just walked um, up a uh, a compartment road and then down a little side compartment road. Um, and then we decided rather than walk all the way back, we'd just cut through the bush um, and drop onto the corn trail. Um, and it's that really thick sort of jungle vine. You see there's native grape growing up trees. And yeah, was, wow. We really had to sort of almost crawl on our hands and knees. But um, we actually think we found an Aboriginal scar tree. So um, that's why I've contacted the Braidwood Historical Society because I've got the GPS coordinates and we need to go back. Um, and they've let um, their Indigenous people know. And so it needs to be registered and see if it's in the logging compartment. So that raises a lot of issues. Um, about what other um, Aboriginal or Indigenous sort of uh, sites of significance are there undiscovered that could just be logged. Mm. So, mm. I mean, it's something we put in a submission for the regional forest agreements that were that are, you know, being looked at 
they were they were 20 years in the area and you know people are concerned about them just being renewed as they are and our, one of our key things in the submission was that we need for us to have genuine community consultation so that they can you know be told be informed by the community about important community recreational and historical um things that are in the logging compartment that need to be protected. So they're not going to find out about it if they don't tell anyone. They just tell them. And and the corn trail um, compartments, there are no neighbours. It's <coughs> only in the national parks. So. Yeah, yeah, that's often the case that um, national parks seem to have a lot of logging going on along the boundary. Yeah. Yeah, and there's a... Um, you know, with the election coming up, there's a you know people gathering forces, um, and I know there's proposals to um, supplement national parks. And these little beachheads that are right next to national parks are perfect because it's exactly the same as the the, the neighbouring national parks. It didn't make it in for inclusion when the um, regional forestry agreement was negotiated 20 years ago. Um, um, the Monga National Park was gazetted in 2000, but um, now that it's you know come, we know that it's coming up for logging because the harvest plan has been published yeah and yeah. you know at Corona they said that they'd be logging in mid-december they had a letter um and then last friday on the radio they um said well the pulp the harvest plan's been published today and we're logging on monday and they started on monday two months earlier than the community i mean the community are out there trying to find hollow bearing trees um look for birds threaten you need to listen for threatened owls because then you can trigger, you know, small exclusions, but they make a difference. So they lost two months of time and they're actually quite furious about it. Yeah, well, I, I can understand that. I mean, um, now you've mentioned the RFA there. What, what's an RFA and what's the importance of it? Um, so I'm not an expert on it, but the regional forestry agreements, there's... Um, my understanding in New South Wales is there's three. Um, so there's... I think one for the Eden area, one for the Batemans Bay area, and maybe one for the northern area. Um, and my understanding is that um, when the the logging blockade occurred at Parliament House, um, Paul Keating um, divested um, national responsibility for forests to the state governments um, through the regional forestry agreements. And they, you know, the people talk about it being a way to end the forest wars. Um, and but my understanding from trying to get compliance in logging compartments in our local community is the the really key issue is that um, forestry is exempt from the Environment Protection Biodiversity Conve Conservation Act. Sorry, the forestry's exempt, exempt from the legislation that protects the forest. Yes. So um, the when they yeah, that's, that's a bit of an odd one, isn't it? Yeah, so when we're out there, you know, looking for um, threatened species that, you know, if there's if there's a barking owl or a powerful owl nesting, you can, if you know it, and you can record it and get the GPS for the tree and mark it up on the bioatlas, you can get that tree protected. But and if it's nesting, you can get a, you know, 30 metre exclusion zone. All those sort of rules are in this document called the, that I've got here, the terms of the threatened species license for the South Coast subregion, and that's part of this, you know, exemption from the Environment and Biodiversity Conservation Act. Um, so, 
Yeah, I mean, forestry will say they're, they're subject to thousands of environmental laws, but they're also, you know, there's a an exempt, you know, there's a, a raft of exemptions. Aha, that's going to be Liz from Karana calling in on the phone. Do you find yourself longing for the apocalypse? I did. I was looking for a reason to live. Hi. Are you feeling tired, irritable, stressed out? Well, you might consider nature. From the people that brought you getting outside comes prescription strength nature, a non-harmful medication shown to relieve the crippling symptoms of modern life. Nature's recommended for humans of all ages, and it's great for pets, too. Nature can reduce cynicism, meaninglessness, anal retentiveness, and murderous rage. In clinical studies, nature is proven to decrease work-induced catatonia. Caution. Nature may cause you to slow down, quit your job, or seriously consider what the f*** you're doing with your life. If you are overly cynical, jaded, or emotionally numb, you may need to increase your dose of nature. Do you have trouble being even mildly uncomfortable? Nature may not be right for you. Side effects may include spontaneous euphoria, taking yourself less seriously, and being in a good mood for no apparent reason. So ask your doctor if nature is right for you. And we are joined by Liz, who is the community liaison from Karana Forest. How are you there, Liz? I'm here. How are you guys going? Excellent. Yeah, we're going well. We're going well. I'm actually phoning in from uh, Karana Forest at the moment, and I'm standing at the edge of the compartment looking out to sea. I can see the blue of Karana, uh, sorry, of Tilba Tilba Lake and, uh, and the sea, and it's a, it's a perfect day here in the forest. Nice one, nice one. Um, yeah, so Karana, can you describe the area there? Karana is a, a beautiful place. It's uh, Some people would say it's the jewel in the crown of the um, nature coast, uh, sort of between Naruma and Bermagui, uh, inland from Mystery Bay, uh, and right near Tilba Tilba, which is a heritage-protected landscape and a very popular tourist destination. It's a beautiful coastline. You travel down from Naruma and it's just one bay of lakes after another, beautiful timber bridges, uh, and it's certainly a, a very popular tourist destination. Yeah, nice, nice. Um, how many tourists do you reckon come through there? Well, if, if Mystery Bay Camping Ground is anything to go by, um, the numbers swell there from um, perhaps a few people per week during winter to several thousand for the whole summer. Yeah, right. So what do you reckon they're after? Why would they come to that part of the world rather than any other? It's a really unique place. Um, the Mystery Bay coastline is basically a forest of spotted gum. So if you're familiar with the road that, that comes down from Canberra to the coast, you travel through a beautiful forest uh, that is tall timbers, it's beautiful spotted gums with burrowings, which are a form of cycad, at the bottom of the spotted gums. Uh, I'm not sure exactly if those ones are spotted gums up in that forest, but they look that, they have that sort of look. They're very tall, straight trees with uh, very few lower limbs, and it's a spectacular sight. Some of these trees are giant trees that have been growing here for hundreds of years, and it's a really unique landscape, and it really attracts people who are, uh, just want to get away from it all and spend some time in nature. Yeah, right. Um... Yeah, so, so what's, what's happening to the nature there? Well, for 
forestry uh, New South Wales have a licence to harvest in state forests. That's, that is their job. And state forests in New South Wales are a little bit different to... Um, I've noticed a lot of people from Canberra possibly don't quite uh, understand the framework of, of the um, state forests. It's a little bit different. I think you've got um, ACTU or you've got um, some Canberra state forests, sort of similar type of thing. But here, the state forests are set aside, and they are set aside for um, timber purposes, but that's not their only purpose. They are mixed-use forests, which means they are used for recreational purposes. They have a lot of... Um, uh, things happening in there like um, apiarists, beekeepers um, keep their hives in the forest um, and they're used for nature trails um, and a range of community purposes. So it's, it's not just the state forest. But when, when forestry comes along with a harvest plan, they do for that period of time have a licence to take out the trees and then they use those for hardwood flooring, they use them for bench tops, um, firewood, pallet boxes, timber fences, toilet paper and copy paper. Yeah, right, right. Um, and are any of these things able to be produced in any other way? Well, it's a really good question. There's a large call for uh, New South Wales forestry to actually move to a different model of foresting. In some states, um, native forest logging has actually ceased. Uh, and there is a new model that the community is very much pushing for, uh, which is to have hardwood um, plantation forests. Now, that doesn't necessarily have to happen only in state forests. It can also happen in private land. So people who have previously been farmers can actually be encouraged to move into um, this type of industry, which is a new industry, and it does create employment. Uh, it probably, I wouldn't have the figures, but I would imagine that it could perhaps even create more jobs than uh, leaving a forest to regenerate by itself for 30 years and then coming along with a harvester that is uh, you know, a very quick operation. Harvestry, uh, forestry went into the uh, one section of Karana Forest this week on Monday morning and that's already completed. So yeah, in, right. in that it's that fast, it's that quick, that within a day they began first thing Friday morning uh, and by Friday afternoon uh, that first section was almost complete. The logs were already going onto the truck and being shipped to Eden. So, uh, you know, by truck, of course. Yeah. Um, so it is a very swift operation uh, and there's a lot of thought that, you know, we are at a point in time in our community where we are beyond... Um, older type practices, older approaches to forestry and the community is very much looking forward to new models of foresting. So this would involve people actually involved in uh, growing um, seeds for a diverse forest so it wouldn't be a monoculture like what we see with uh, pine trees which are soft, soft wood plantations and monoculture forests can be just as damaging as, as anything else if not more damaging. Um, and that's actually something that Andrew Constance, uh, the local member for Bega, mentioned at a public consultation meeting, that he's very concerned about the push towards plantation if it means monoculture. But the reality is that most of the research that's being done at the moment is not looking towards softwood or monoculture. It is accepting that there is a genuine need for hardwood culture. People love working with um, flooring, hardwood flooring. People love um, 
hardwood timber finishes in their homes. It's a beautiful natural um, material to be working with. So why not acknowledge that that's what people like, but change the approach. So start now with uh, growing seedlings, planning the, the diversity of the forest, going back out into the forest with people who are trained in that area, who know how to grow these particular native um, species, and grow a diverse forest that has a range of needs that it can meet with also being respectful to biodiversity and that goes to plant life as well as bird life, animal life and soil quality, the whole lot. Well, I mean, if you used something like an oak tree or a mixed oak forest even, you could put in, uh, you could make flour out of the out of the acorns. Uh, that's It's becoming a new boutique food. Um, it's been a staple in Europe for thousands of years. And you well, can also grow truffles underneath. Uh, what yes, other sort of... Certainly in colder climates as well, that the truffle industry is um, a large industry, uh, even in the pine forest. But, uh, and I know they grow underneath hazelnut trees. So, you know, those sorts of things can be um, co-production methods that are very effective. But what we're really pushing for is native Australian hardwood plantation forests with native Australian species that encourage wildlife habitat for Australian animals. So we'd be looking at using the same types of species that grow in the forest, but managing it in a very different way. Hmm, interesting. Do you reckon, it, uh, is there been any research that you know of done on, on how... There have been a lot of submissions to... Uh, New South Wales State Government has recently held a, a community consultation process for the um, IFOA, which is the forestry agreement um, plan that is... Uh, the forestry agreements that are in place now are, are sort of slowly expiring. They were set up 20 years ago, and now they're sort of coming to an end. So what's going to happen going forward is a new forestry plan will be in place. And a lot of submissions that were made to New South Wales State Government regarding the new IFOA were encouraging this new look and this new model for managing state forests. Uh, so the, the research is there. A lot of the um, documents are, are on the website of the New South, of the New South Wales EPA. Uh, if you go to a section called Have Your Say, uh, a lot of those public consultation documents are actually published there. Yeah, right. Now, now, Joss, we've we've pretty much caught up with where we were at with the uh, with the interview with Joss from Mogo. So feel free to to butt in at any time and join the conversation. Yeah, um, I'll, just while we're talking about the use of the products coming from um, our local forests, you know, it's interesting because um, you know I've actually analysed the um, harvest plans for for Mogo, Karuna, and the Corn Trail. Um, you know, they say. How many, um, you know, what the, the what it's used for, and you know, we need to talk about wood chips. So, you know, in Mogo, so the wood chips go to the wood chip mill at um, Eden. Um, at Mogo, it was twenty five percent. At Karuna, at sixteen percent, and at the Corn Tray Trail, it'll be thirty four percent. So that's a third of that those um, trees that are being taken away in trucks are going to the wood chip pile. You know, and then it's exported. I mean, I've actually went there a couple of weeks ago and saw whole trees being dropped straight onto the um, uh, deck of the the container ship. So they're not even being processed here. Um, 
they're going away, being made into paper that Australia then buys back and it adds to our current account deficit. So, you know, where's the, where's the, the work in that? And, um, and, and apart from what the trees are being used for, the other big issue that really shocked us when we started looking at the forests is that 65% of the tree is left on the forest floor. So the entire treetop and any part of the stem that has a branch come growing out of it is left behind. I mean, just about the entire tree. A, a stem that goes into the truck is taken away. Well, last time I checked, the, the definition of waste wood in a forest is anything that's not a large, high-quality saw log. So... I'll just... The, um, would I'll you? Just, Go on, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, with um, Karana Forest, of course, because it is so close to the coast and there's so much community concern about um, the harvesting of this forest, one thing that has happened, the community has... Uh, work very, very, very closely with forestry regarding, you know, how this operation is to be carried out. And that process is still going on. I spent three hours in the forest yesterday myself with um, harvesting crew, uh, with the, the, the production manager and the ecologist from Forestry New South Wales, um, from, sorry, Forestry Corporation. One, and one of the things that has come out of that process is that they have um, made offers to actually come back and compact those areas of the trees that are left on the forest floor because we've got a, an out-of-control bushfire burning just over the next hill that's been burning for a month. It claimed one house fire a month ago and it, it claimed the same, very same fire has just claimed another house fire, uh, a, 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 another house this, this week that's a month apart. Um, that's, the, that's the size of this out-of-control fire. Now, and it is this not is, very far to the, the south. Yeah, go on, sorry. So what we're worried, very, very worried about, as Josh has just said, that when you drop those that, that material to the forest floor, it is highly volatile and it is highly, you know, high fire danger. Um, and we're in a situation where, you know, it's real. It's, it's only just over the other side of the hill. So um, forestry have acknowledged that and they have actually offered to come back in and work towards reducing that load that is dropped on the forest floor. But as... Joss is saying, in other compartments, it isn't necessarily going to happen that way. Yeah, Joss, you wanted to make a point there. Yeah, so, I mean, really, the way all they do is, um, with the big uh, piece of logging machinery, is they just, you know, pat it down. Um, and then what happens with all um, compartments, including right behind the timber pioneer town of Mogo, um, with the wooden maze there um, and right next to people's homes is they then do a post-harvest burn. So, um, and the, as we all know, with climate change, um, the season for doing burns is getting smaller and smaller. I mean, in, on the south coast, the we're already in a, a fire ban period in, in se September. Um, so really people are, you know, and it... it seems that the burning will only be between July, August and uh, June, July and August. And so all of these areas that are waiting to be burnt, if they haven't got, even within those periods, if it's too windy, they can't burn. So they just, all this, they call it slash or, or trash. It's just sitting there and it's actually a fire hazard, a, a forest. I mean, there's a lot of debate about fire, but I come from, I've been living in the Adelaide Hills in a town that was burnt that, was surrounded by fire um, in Ash Wednesday. Um, I managed for the Parklands Group 22 hectares of stringy bark. So we liaised a lot with the fire service council and the residents about fire risk. And you don't want piles and piles of dead material lying around everywhere. 
Um, and then the other area to think about is the carbon emissions um, that from from this burn. And one way to uh, to reduce that a little bit is is with indigenous traditional fire stick burning. And I know there's an indigenous land management sort of group that is starting to do that around Bega. So with with the indigenous fire stick burning, you have <coughs> mosaic burning. So not the entire forest floor is burnt. It's it's patchy and also species that don't, that don't come back in a fire have a chance to, you know, to keep going. Yeah. That's a, a good point, Joss. Also, um, that was something that was raised with Andrew Constance as well uh, during a public consultation meeting that he held at Tilba um, outside the, um, the old uh, Tilba Real Dairy. So um, we were right in the thick of, of the town there in the history, um, right in the middle of the, the milking uh, and dairy industry there. And Andrew Constance had a community meeting and certainly the issue of um, doing cultural burns uh, at Karana was something that was asked and Andrew Constance did say during that community meeting that this is something he would be prepared to look into advocating for. Yeah, so when you when you go into a, a forest that's been logged, how what sort of percentage of the canopy that was there is sort of remaining as a general rule? Um, well, I'll, I'll just, um, Liz, I'll just talk about MOGO because I know that you've also got what's called a visual protection zone. Um, so we, this valley that surrounds our nature track is all on the map. It's all cross-hatched in green as it is in the Karuna Forest on either side of the Princess Highway for about 50 metres. In the harvest plan, it um, talks about it being a visual protection zone and there being no holes in the canopy. Um, so we... we were assured by this documentation, by seeing the map with the visual cross-hatching, also along the Princess Highway near the river near Mogo. Uh, also, the text of the harvest plan talked about having no holes in the canopy. And then, you know, it was logged. And there's just, I mean, I've got, there's photos on our website, on our Facebook page, and this is one here. It's just a valley that's just like it's completely cleared and it's being burnt out, there's trees fallen everywhere. And so, of course, we wrote to Forestry about this and put in a complaint, and any complaint we put into Forestry, we actually put it through to the EPA, uh, Environmental Protection Authority, and the answer we got back from Forestry is it's only if the holes in the canopy are only an issue if you can see them when you drive past. Uh. Yeah, well, there's another issue that I'm trying to get to with the with the loss of canopy, and, and it's, it's related to the bushfire issue because... The more, what would happen to the to the to the, the the ground vegetation once there's more sunlight getting in? Well, um, you know, I do know that people talk about the forest drying out, um, and also you certainly in the Adelaide Hills it just gets completely infested with weeds. Whenever I mean, in the harvest plan, it talks about deliberately creating mechanical disturbance to encourage regeneration, but. Um, you, the area down the coast where I live was recently had a controlled burn by the fire service and two years later it's absolutely thick with macrosamia. It's come back with a vengeance. Um, you can also get on Brown Mountain, you've got very thick stands of um, wattles. You know, you can get a very dense understory regrowth. So, you know, this issue... I mean, New South Wales needs to learn from South Australia where we can have up to 20 fires a season. Um, and burning off, it can be seen as a, you know, a sort of a knee-jerk reaction. But if you get a thicker, a thicker regrowth, 
not necessarily of big trees but of understory, then you know it, it, it is an issue. Yeah, well, I'm thinking. I mean, the, the, the alarm bell that really went off in my head when I, I heard about this is that all of the hills behind Batemans Bay, between the highway and that massive area of residential land in between Batemans Bay and, and, and Browlee is being thinned out and the sun's getting into the ground, it's drying things out, there's bonfires all over the place, like you said. Um, and, yeah, the sun's getting in, evaporation's increasing, the, the soil's losing its moisture, uh, the young trees are using up more water and this is creating a, a massive fire trap for the population all the way along the coast, almost by design. I don't think that if I was planning to increase the fire risk for that section, I could do it any better. Mm. Yeah. It's quite worrying, isn't it? And the, the points that you're both making are so valid. One of the things that uh, we're doing here at Karana is we're actually um, photographing the, um, the crown shyness. Uh, so we're actually photographing the tree canopy uh, and looking at the gaps between the trees uh, where trees actually make space for light and, and um, to allow each other through. So we have been progressively going through and photographing that uh, and that will continue. Uh, and then we'll be able to go back afterwards and photograph that after the harvest has uh, been through and you know look at the difference and actually show to people what the difference is We've got GPS coordinates. We can stand in the same place and take the same photograph. Um, and that probably will answer, you know, document the question that you're asking. Um, just on Monday, from the very first day of harvest uh, here in Karana, we did uh, go through and video. And uh, this is an area that we had walked through extensively on our first day out in the forest monitoring. Uh, and to see the amount of light coming through just after even half a day's work, it was certainly looked like a very, very, very different forest. Yeah, and I guess the other thing that sort of related to that is um, is the the water which is held within the forest soil itself. What does what does logging do to the amount of water that that comes out of a forest? Um, well, I know David Lindemeyer talks about this a lot um, with Melbourne. They're wanting to establish a great. Um, I think it's a great national forest there and they're talking about how um, with the logging of the mountain ash, um, the new trees, uh, because they're growing, that they're actually taking up so much water, it's actually threatening Melbourne's water supply. So you've got two parts of government there that are working at odds with each other, you know, so Vic Forests and, you know, the water supply. Mm. I wonder which one we need more, eh? <laughs> I guess that can be a problem with plantations too, can't it? So, uh, yeah. I think the thing with plantations, though, is that it would give you more scope to plan for those things. Mm. Um, it would also give you the ability to plan when you would be planting those seedlings. If you're relying on nature to do its best to throw the forest back to its harvestable uh, state, then you're not really... Um, taking advantage of wet seasons and that sort of thing to, to do the most um, planting. You're just sort of letting nature work it out for itself. But don't forget, nature doesn't necessarily understand or probably completely doesn't understand uh, what the harvesters are wanting to do. Um, so, you know, nature's going to do what it thinks is best to, to regenerate, but not necessarily for the idea of preserving water for other areas. Um, and... 
the thing about plantations, you can actually plan where you're going to um, plant them. So Tumut um, is a radiata pine plantation area. Um, and I've been up there, I studied forestry unit and we went um, and had a, a sort of five day visit. And, you know, Tumut's just a hive of industry. Um, there's several factories there. There's a corrugated car factory, a very big, busy factory. Um, you know, there's construction timber from the pine, a laminate, laminated sheet timber factory, and as, and also local employment with the nursery and planting out the pines. So um, it's just amazing because the thing about the plantation sector here in New South Wales is it's actually running out of profit. Um, and I know a few weeks ago, Victorian sawmillers, I think they're called the, the Group of Six, they asked for plantation supplies for the future. They can see that the future of... of logging in native forests is you know running out not only literally in terms of trees but also in terms of the social alliance uh, social license um and you know the, the the victorian sawmillers raised issues about plantation projects that have been funded and they haven't been started so this is the way forward for the industry but it's quite concerning how um you know, the, the economics, I've got a, a report, Money Doesn't Grow on Trees, it's by the Australia Institute, the financial and economic losses of native forestry in New South Wales. And so the, the softwood sector, the pinus radiata that um, is grown on, um, you know, the royalties go to the, the um, Forestry Corporation New South Wales, that's running at a profit and actually subsidises the native forest logging. Um, here it describes the loss of the native forest sector to New South Wales taxpayers. Uh, native forest logging by the Forestry Corporation of New South Wales, uh, this was written in 2016, generated losses of $79 million over the last seven years. Uh, it, discontinuing the practice could deliver significant benefits to the state of New South Wales. So I think the economics needs to be looked at. Um, and also the new... Um, issue that's come through that wasn't talked about so widely 20 years ago was the role of, of the forest as a carbon sink and also the need for Australia to re reduce its carb national carbon emissions um, and to stop stopping logging in the native forestry sector would deliver a substantial reduction in carbon submissions and if Australia, I mean this money doesn't grow on trees reports talks about that we can adjust the mechanism so that um, the New South government can actually receive money to leave that forest standing. The New South Wales forestry workers can continue to work to manage the state forests without cutting them down um, and the industry would need to be restructured so that the workers are working in the plantation sector as they're starting to and as the industry is asking for. Well, that sounds reasonably, uh, reasonably sound. Um, so what happens to the carbon in a forest when you log it? So... I mean, forestry have talked to me about how when you cut the trees down, the new trees that are growing will sequester the carbon. But that's actually dodging the question. When you cut down a tree, the carbon that's stored in that tree, in that massive tree, is released. Um, if it is made into um, a hardwood product, that it, it will be stored for the length, for the lifetime of that product. So in the case of construction timber, you know, it'll be until, it, you know, for 40 years. But... You know, when I look at the corn trail and the, the wood chips are going to be, you know, 34%, that'll just be turned to paper. So that's being released. Um, anything that's going to wood chips and made into paper will be released. And also the forest slash, the 65% left on the forest floor. Right. So anything that's sort of rots or is burnt 
is, is pretty much done. So you can think of the tree roots as well would be releasing slowly. and Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, you know, the native forest sector is a significant contributor to Australia's carbon emissions. And it would be such a simple decision. You would just have the New South Wales government say, we're no longer going to log our native forests as they do in New Zealand. And Australia could, you know, I mean, New South Wales, like California, could become an international leader in terms of reducing our country's carbon emissions but also reducing our um, threatened species extinctions because so many um, threatened species live in the forest. So just with one decision, one organisation, uh, it could make a significant change and show leadership and position for the future. Mm. Now, I remember a few years ago when there was a campaign going on, I can't remember where, but another, another one. This is all a bit like... Uh, Groundhog's Day, really, but um, this outfit sat at the exit road to the compartment, and they took down the license number of the the trailers going out, and they also had someone sitting at the road into the chip mill, and they counted how many of those log loads coming out actually went to the chip mill, and it was a huge percentage. It was actually over eighty percent from that particular compartment. Yeah, it's uh, a very good point that you're making and that's something we raised with um, forestry yesterday um, we have uh, advised forestry that for Corona Forest we do have community uh, who are monitoring uh, where, the, where the trucks are going um, we had a meeting with forestry I'm sorry I am, I am actually out in the, in the compartment at the moment there's <laughs> a little bit of noise around so I apologise if, uh, if that's uh, no uh, no that's cross, fine <laughs> Um, the, the, um, we have advised forestry this week that we, the community are monitoring. Um, they're not, we don't, uh, nobody wants to uh, impinge on the ability of the contractors to do their work. It's not their choice. It's not their call. Uh, so it's no, it's, it's no, um, you know, uh, you know, nothing towards them at all. It's just simply a matter of recording the data of what is happening with the forest because, um, uh, Forestry New South Wales did promise Karana that the majority of the saw, of the uh, saw logs would be going to Naruma, uh, sorry to Nowra, which is a high quality um, mill for hardwood products, the flooring and bench tops. So good quality um, uh, output, and that's that, that's mostly what spotted gums are for. Um, if you look up spotted gums on the net, you won't see any reference to um, spotted gum trees or forests. What you'll see is um, the uh, hardwood industry, uh, you know, for, for floors and that sort of thing, you'll see a lot of input. Um, for, it's in high demand. It's a, it's a very, very sought-after timber. Yeah, it's beautiful. Yeah, so we have asked Forestry, well, where, where are the, the, the um, trucks going? And they did say to us that they'd be going mostly, predominantly, to Nowra and also to anything that had, like, slight imperfections would go to uh, the mill at uh, just north of Naruma and only a small percentage would be going south to Eden. Now, unfortunately, uh, the trucks are leaving at night. Uh, they're leaving under... Uh, they're being loaded uh, under lights, OK? So at this stage, you know, this time of day, most people are home with their families. Uh, it's happening away from the, the highway, so, you know, you can't really see. If you were driving up and down the highway, you wouldn't really know that this operation was occurring over the next hill. Um, and then the trees, uh, the trucks are leaving um, un under cover of darkness at the moment. Well, they certainly were last night anyway. Um, so we have asked 
uh, forestry to tell us which way they're going. We've seen them heading south, which is to Eden, which worries us in the sense of them going to the chip mill or the, the pulp mill, as we're supposed to call it. Um, and they have confirmed that they are going to um, the processing centre that is south. So we've asked today if they could please urgently tell us why we were told uh, that they were going to Nowra, which at least gave us the the feeling or the sense that this beautiful, truly beautiful forest um, would have some sort of purpose. I started calling it a one-night stand because when we were hearing stories about um, Karana forest being used, the spotted gums being used, the pallets um, for uh, toilet paper, for printer paper uh, and firewood, it, it's sort of when you look at that objectively, you start thinking, well, how long does firewood last? It lasts for one night. So we started calling it, a, you know, a one-night stand type use of forestry. You've got trees that are growing for 200 years and then, you know, they're over and done with, you know, so fast and that's just really a sad use of a, of a very, very beautiful resource. Um, and to reassure us on that, we were told, no, 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 there's very, very little that would be having that, that, that short-term purpose. Most of it, hopefully, would be going into... Australian homes with, with floors that last 100 years. Um, but the way that uh, we approach uh, building materials in Australia and in all over the world in contemporary use, we tend to have a very short-term view of how we manage our housing, uh, how we manage um, any construction pro projects. We tend to have this short-term view. So, you know, it's also a question for our culture in the sense of looking at why do we have this um, consumption view? You know, why, why do we have this way of life that is constantly rebuilding, building houses that are for short-term use? Um, I know myself, I've lived in um, two houses that were um, very old houses and still lasting, whereas you know, younger houses that are built with contemporary methods are really only built to last 20 years, if that. Then people pull them down and start again. So, you know, this is a huge burden on resource consumption in Australia and it is directly related to our construction industry and our lifestyle choices. Yeah, well, I mean, if you look in the old houses that are getting torn down all around Canberra, there's this beautiful jarrow in the in the trusses which was pulled out of WA and shipped uh, over here. and It's yeah. getting crunched up with an excavator and taken to God knows where as a big mixed rubble lot of crunched up good stuff really it's a shame so i'm probably more of the modern generation because i've built a new house and <laughs> it's this only two pieces of wood <laughs> in the laundry lintel so it's steel frame um plastic and then lookalike plastic floorboards so there is you know a move away from from timber for construction um, and also um, another interesting development in Victoria was um, that Bunnings um, that, you know, does sell a lot of timber and Officeworks, which sells coffee paper, have um, advised the, the industries down there that in two years' time they'll only be accepting products that are, um, have got the tick, you know, the Forestry Stewardship Council tick, so the industry. And, um, you know, the sustainable timbers down there, they didn't meet the standard. They've tried to. They haven't even met the very bottom ones. So it's an yeah. interesting point, Josh. That's actually um, the day that we met with uh, forestry um, on site uh, for the first meeting. Um, there's been other community meetings, but it was the first meeting that I had had with them. 
and it was to do with um, we were talking about a road that, that had been made and we were just looking at how that was done um, and during the meeting um, we actually told forestry about that that the court uh, the decision had been published the day before um, for Bunnings to actually withdraw from purchasing uh, from you know from their, their those sources and we actually told forestry about that and they, they didn't know about it. But um, from what I'm understanding, those decisions are going to copy forward to New South Wales as well. Um, and we did ask uh, Forestry if they were members of the Forestry Stewardship Council, if they had the certification. And to our best, the best of our knowledge, the answer is no, that they don't. Yeah, yeah. So we're going to have to... Be fairly brief now. We've got about ten minutes to cover all of the rest of the alternatives. Um, so, what else can we do to avoid this this market? I mean, the chip mill has has been talked about a lot as a, a massive economic source of of momentum, I suppose, to keep these these things open. What, what's the role of the chip mill in the in the whole logging argument? Um, I'm not fully briefed on it, but I do know that they are, I mean, they are chipping native forests, but they're also bringing, chipping um, pine trees. So they're trucking pine trees to the chipping okay, factory. Okay, I didn't know that. Yeah, mm. when you have a look, um, there's two piles. One's a darker colour pile and one's a lighter coloured pile. So, you know, that the industry is transitioning over to plantation. I mean, but then again, you see the ship having whole trees just loaded onto the deck. So, mm. um, and I think, you know, it's exciting um, to embrace, to, to know what the change is coming and embrace it. And I think the, the forestry need to get on board with that. And if, if the retailers are wanting that forest, that certification, they need to be producing that plantation um, uh, timber. And also in the sense of um, timber, timber products, um, there is a move in the construction industry to, to move towards um, manufactured uh, timber floorings. So these are, these are not... Um, this is not like a, a floating floor or that sort of a thing, but it's a, you still do a, 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 like a conventional type flooring, but it's with a constructed timber finish. So it, then it's not actually using quite so much of the... Um, you know, we, when, you, when you're making a floor, you want to have a couple of things. You want to have um, a durable floor and you want it to have a... You know, it needs to be able to um, be serviceable, so it's got to be able to have traffic walking over it and and um, furniture on it and families running around on it, that's what it's for. But the, um, the upper surface, uh, we're looking at, you know, we want to see a good quality timber finish, and that's what people are attracted to. But there are other ways now. We can have these manufactured floorboards um, that are engineered timber. Okay, so the, the um, top layer is going to look, give you that beautiful finish that you're looking for, but the core of the... Of the, um, of the the, the, the piece of timber is is a constructed fabric, so it gives you the benefit of um, a long-lasting, durable, hard-wearing product that gives a beautiful finish, but it's not quite so hard on the forest. Hmm. Yep. Yep. That makes sense. Yeah. Um. And yeah. So, what do you reckon? What, what sort of government policy changes could could be a a winner here? Because I, I figure that's probably the the cheapest option, even if you're if you're paying out the poor old contractor on the ground, who's really the meat in the sandwich. I mean, they got a big mortgage, they've got to work to pay it off. If yeah. you compensated all of those guys, and there's not really that many of them, even yeah. bought out their machinery, which can't be translated over to the plantation sector. 
one of the things that, that we've asked for... That would still be cheaper. Yeah, and one of the things we've asked for at the moment, and this would really help, um, and it goes to you know that community consultation element of how to manage the forest. Um, we've actually approached forestry and said, well, you know, you could actually do something for the community here in the sense of some of the trees that uh, are around the main stream at Karana Forest, we've act- uh, they could actually be made into a beautiful walk that the community could enjoy that actually show how these trees grow. It could showcase forestry's work in the sense of, um, you know, how they, they, they bring on the next generation of the trees, um, this sort of a thing. It, should, it could actually showcase their operations, but it would also leave some trees for habitat and bring people into the forest so they can see what's going on there and enjoy this natural habitat of magnificent stands of tall trees. Um, and then at the, um, I guess, at the state level, the, nat- the New South Wales Nature Conservation Council has re- recently launched its um, um, plan for the next election. So it's got a few points. So the first one is to end native forest logging. And so that's just to just have the regional forestry agreements expire in 2019 and 2021. Um, to manage public native forests as a sort of a mix of protected areas so there's still regional multi-use areas near residents so you can still have your dog walking horse riding that you don't have in national parks Um, and then establish some particular parks Um, I know there's a 50 parks proposal that um, talks about you know the Clyde River Wild and Scenic River proposal that you could would include the the corn trail logging Um, there's a Duns Creek proposal an area like Karana um, forest, which is right on Corona Lake, that people go kayaking on. It's just crazy. It's being logged. You know, the local community use that for recreation. It needs to be a regional park. Um, the other thing they mention is to prohibit the burning of forests for electricity. So, you know, there's a lot of areas that need to be looked at. Yes, and there's the old charcoal mill that got closed, uh, that got stopped uh, about, must be 10 years ago now in Batemans Bay. Well, it's back on the agenda with bio, bio, uh, bioenergy. Ah, Phoenix, the Phoenix. <laughs> yeah, and Josh does raise a good point there. One of the um, things that we've asked, we've actually sent several, we've sent at this stage three um, reports from ecologists um, to the Marine Park Authority, to Forestry and the EPA and Council um, that are, have identified that the icoles, which are the... Um, the small lakes that are sometimes open to the sea and sometimes closed, and they're called icoles. But w- well, the problem is that because they're only sometimes open to the sea and they're traditionally very shallow lakes, they're very susceptible to temperature fluctuations. So with sediment uh, running into the lake, um, potentially, because, I mean, forestry at this stage have done everything that the Marine Park Authority has asked them to do, which they have put in some um, buffers to prevent um, runoff into Corona Lake because the compartment directly fronts onto the lake um, and there's a 50 metre setback um, but you know in the event that there's a large rain event um, then our, our, the community is concerned that, that those buffers that are correct as far as forestry have been asked they've only they've done exactly what they've been asked to do we're just concerned that what they're asked to do perhaps may not be enough so the ICOL reports we've sent in, they show data on um, scientific data by ecologists that are recording the, um, the water quality uh, and showing that algal blooms are likely to occur running into summer and the algal blooms are toxic to humans as well as fish. 
they result in complete fistula. <laughs> Um, it's a known incident, it's not a maybe, it's a, it's a, it's a predictable event uh, and it's reasonably foreseeable that this would happen uh, if there's a large rain event uh, and, and, and sediment comes into the forest, uh, uh, into the sea from, from the forest. Now, the, the interesting thing is that Karana is also, um, it sits between two of these lakes. So there's Tilba Tilba Lake on one side and Karana Lake on the other. Tilba Tilba is uh, reached only by um, streams, but uh, one of the, um, the, the, the elders, if you like, of, of Karana, um, Mal Dibden, who's somebody who has worked with um, forestry over the years and, and, and worked towards Gula being gazetted as a national park, he raised concerns that um, siltation from the stream inside Karana Forest will be exiting to Tilba Lake. Uh, and he's very concerned as well about the potential there for a fish kill. Now, as Jocelyn said, Karana Lake particularly is a, a, a kayaking area. I kayak there myself. Um, you can put your boat in at uh, the bridge and you can kayak all the way up to Tilba Valley Winery and Alehouse. And that's an actual great tourism uh, spot there. But you'll be rowing now past the um, compartment and, uh, you know, it's just a strange kind of a concept. I don't really get why you would want to push ahead with harvesting that area. At the moment, there's an exclusion zone um, around the foreshore because there's nesting sea eagles. Um, there's a 300-metre exclusion zone. But forestry did confirm yesterday that that will revert to a 50-metre exclusion zone as they come forward around the compartment and finish the harvest in that section so that they can actually harvest with up, uh, up to 50 metres uh, in, in front of Karana Lake after the, the uh, fledglings leave the nest. And yeah. we were concerned that that was their plan. They've confirmed yesterday that, yes, this is their plan. Yeah, well, they're not going to need it next year, are they? <sighs> yeah. So one other um, reason that I've heard people talk about is that the reason that forestry are now logging in more obvious areas, like along the side of Brown Mountain um, and behind Mogo, um, areas that are highly valued by the community, is because it, the, the wood supply agreements have been over-contracted um, and that there isn't actually enough wood to meet them. So, And I'm also concerned about how quickly they're logging, and I feel that that's because of the community concern. Just log before the heat gets to hot. Well that's a good point Joss because you know as you know um, I received a letter from uh, Forestry at 5pm on Friday um, saying that the harvest was going ahead uh, on the 17th of December 2018 and lo and behold Forestry actually began the harvest at 6am on Monday morning. Yeah, um, that's pretty, so that sort of and, and the community consultation period was still going on we were still deep in consultation with forestry. They're aware of that, uh, and not even the neighbours were told. Yeah, look, forestry has consistently shown that they're, <clears throat> think they're above the law anyway. Now, um, we only have nine minutes left, so we need to say what can people do? What's coming up? Uh, yes. So... Um the New South Wales election is in March next year. Um, 
We've already been showing um, candidates, the forest at Mogo. So we've shown uh, the Labor candidate for Gilmore, Fiona Phillips. Uh, we've also shown the Labor candidate for Bega, um, Leanne Atkinson. We've shown our local councillor, uh, Pat McGinley. Um, we actually took the Wilderness Society campaign manager through a week. In fact, she did a week-long tour of the entire southeast. From um, she, she saw the corn trail logging that's going to um, happen at Mogo, Karana Forest the um, and the wood chip mills. So um, things are heating up and people need to think about how, they, how they're voting and also contact their, their, their actual candidates now about what's happening and demand compliance and that community infrastructure, you know, recreational and historical areas are protected as they should be. And how about the RFA? Is there any action people can take on that? Because that, like you say, is up for renewal and that's a massive issue. That'll be another 20 years of smashing the forest if that gets through, won't it? Yeah, and the IFRA um, submission period, which is the new um, RFA, uh, unfortunately has closed. But I, I do feel that it's really important to, um, to get in touch with your local member. We've been asking people to... We've, you know, we work at, at, a, at a grassroots level in the community uh, in, in Karana and um, we hear daily people saying that they're very distressed about what's happening with the forest, but they feel disempowered. Um, so we constantly say, we'll ring up the local member. And then when we ring up the local member, we say, has anyone else rung? And they say no. So it's very important to not feel um, discouraged and not to feel down about it, but to act and actually do things. Ring up council and say you're not happy. Ring up your local member. Ring up the opposition member. Get online and start saying things. Follow the groups that are sharing the information and give some support because the work that a very small group of people are doing could really be benefited from a larger group of people actually speaking up as well. But yeah. the, the media has really um, started to... Um, light up down the coast this week. We had the article in the Rumour Times, the article in the Beagle Weekly, and Andrew Constance's office has been getting um, calls about from concerned residents. The ABC South East had lots of people texting in from all the little towns about their concerns about logging. Um, I know Council met with Forestry last week. Um, you know, we also about had... Um, uh, we were, there was also two reports in the uh, commercial radio news as well with two EC running news bulletins uh, about concerns for Corona this week as well. Mm. How about direct actions on the ground? They're a, they're a classic uh, a classic tactic in forestry uh, history. Are there any of those planned that you know of? Um, there are some actions planned. I think the community has... It's a very interesting question. Uh, Corona community has made a decided effort to um, be respectful and to work cooperatively with forestry in this campaign uh, and we do believe that because of that, that, that approach, that very reasonable and cooperative approach, um, that we have been able to achieve some concessions. I was out with forestry yesterday. Um, the staff, as I was saying before, spent three hours with myself and another community member um, giving us space that we asked. We, we, we were able to achieve a 100 metre um, square metre exclusion zone around a particular habitat tree that we were concerned about uh, and then forestry staff, the markup staff did spend the rest of the afternoon with community in, in together walking around the forest and marking up which trees are going to be 
retained and which trees are going to be excluded. And that's a very good outcome. Mm. Mm. But if the, if the forestry is being done at a loss and taxpayers are paying to have it done and the community, you know, there's, in, there's values beyond just providing jobs to the contractors and, and the trucks, um, and that's the environmental values, which you haven't talked about at much. We'd need another program about that. Another four. Yeah, but, you know, just the, rec- the community values, the areas so much, it just begs the question, why is it being done? Why is the government involved in a loss-making industry? And also, why are people in the community having to put in so much effort to uh, observe what is going on in the forest? I know that people uh, further up the coast are working extensively with forestry to talk about breaches uh, and to look at you know, what's happening with breaches. Um, some of those areas of the Corn Trail are areas where you can't access to go up there and check on breaches. So if, if um, barriers are not put in place to effectively manage water runoff and water management, the community can't be expected to go back up there uh, and, and, man- and, and monitor that. So, so why is there so much pressure on the community to be doing this work when you know, we've got people in paid jobs that we're trusting to do the work, and yet we've got the EPA not funded enough to actually follow through on a lot of the problems. Well, they're actually up. based in Queanbeyan. So I reported this sort of unlicensed, unregistered, dented, rusty diesel truck that's left in the forest to refuel the contracting machinery. And the EPA are in Queanbeyan. They said, look, we're not going to be there for weeks. So yesterday I've reported, well, the Labor... Um, mm-hmm. candidate said to report it to Roads and Maritime Services. So there just isn't, you know, the scrutiny. That's it. Now we're going to have to uh, have to find out how people can get in touch with you because I reckon with all of these people feeling disconnected and, and disempowered, the first step is to get in touch with the local community group around you, even just form one with a few of your mates who think the same way, get together, find the other people who are thinking about this in the same way, and that way you're much more empowered, you're able to do things and you feel a hell of a lot better about the situation and get things done. How can people find you guys? Um, people can find uh, Corona Forest um, by emailing coronastateforest at gmail.com and also by searching for Corona Forest on Facebook. There is a Facebook page called Corona Forest. Corona? C-O-R-U-N-N-A. Yeah. And there's also Karana Forest Protection Group. Um, Jocelyn, in a sec, will tell you how to contact her, her group. Um, but the other thing is that we have also put together a format for how other people who want to start a group in their own area, uh, from our experiences, we've, we've written a list of how to kick that off, and we're happy to work with the other people that need that help. Fantastic. Joss? Yeah, so, of course, we've got our Facebook page as well. So... Um, it's just um, Facebook, Friends of the Forest Mogo. And both of us have Twitter accounts. So um, Friends of the Forest Mogo and Corona Forest. So any, anything we post on Facebook gets posted on Twitter. Mm. Um, and our email is friendsoftheforesthnewsouthwales at gmail.com. All right. Well, we have a very short amount of time left. This is a song you've changed. So thank you very much, uh, Liz and Joss. Thank you. Thanks, Scotty. No worries.
This interview was done in the studios of Community Radio 2XX 98.3 FM in Canberra, Australia. Community Radio relies on its listeners for funding. If you enjoyed this program and would like to hear more programs like it, please donate by going to 2XXFM.org.au, click Support 2XX, and then donate, subscribe, volunteer, or sponsor us. Thanks.